In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. John chapter 1, verse 14. This is the story of how the Word of God has taken flesh in my life. When I was a child, the Bible was a mystery to me. I learned from my mother and father that it was something holy. My mother always said that it should never be placed on the ground, and if for some reason I accidentally dropped it, and it did touch the ground, then I should pick it up, reverence it with a kiss, and apologize to God. This advice instilled in me a deep reverence for the Holy Bible. I must admit that as a child, I loved the creation stories and the gospel parables, but I found most of the Bible to be pretty inaccessible. I would often play a kind of Russian roulette, opening it up to some random page and reading the first thing that I noticed. Time and time again, it would be some obscure passage, like First Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32 to 33. The descendants of Keturah, Abraham's concubine, she bore Zimran, Jachson, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. The sons of Jachson were Sheba and Dadan. The descendants of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the descendants of Keturah. Who were these people? What's the point? I don't get it. Anxiety would build. Why don't I understand this? What I have since realized is, there is still a lot I don't know, and there always will be. My biggest use of the Bible as a child was when I got into trouble. When I did something really stupid and my mother would utter those ominous words, wait until your father gets home, I would go up to my room, grab my Bible, lay down in my bed, and try to find some passage about God relenting and have mercy on his people. Put my finger there, lay my head on the Bible, and escape into sleep, hoping and praying that my father would see those words and have mercy on me. My dad always was merciful. My father was always gentle when it came to religion. I never did like history. I considered it to be in the past, and as far as I was concerned, it should stay there. I saw the Bible as one big history book with litanies of family names that I didn't know and didn't care about, rituals that didn't make sense, numbers and explanations that overwhelmed me. I drew much more comfort from looking at it than looking in it. My devotion was pretty pious. I wore a St. Anthony scapula that a priest had given to me as a child. He told me if I were wearing it when I died, I wouldn't go to hell and might actually go straight to heaven. I prayed the rosary, and if I did it really fast, I could knock the whole thing out in about 10 or 15 minutes. I had a shrine that I built in my bedroom closet. I set it up when I got in trouble for swearing at a kid during a touch football game at recess in the fifth grade. It was here that I prayed that my mother would never find out, and here that I promised God that if he got me out of this, I would give in and be a priest for him. My mother never did find out about the swearing, though I suppose she will now. And yes, I did keep my word. Today I am a priest. My shrine was a simple bookshelf that my father helped me make by hand. Together he and I cut the wood, stained it, and nailed it together. 
I filled it with holy books, my children's Bible, a rosary for my first communion, a statue of St. Michael the Archangel, my patron saint, and a five-by-seven portrait of my godmother framed in gold. The Bible was something I picked up in haste to try to find an answer, kind of like shaking a magic eight ball over and over until something came up that seemed relevant. I tried more than once to read the Bible cover to cover, but never made it through Genesis. I had this fantasy that maybe if I read the whole thing straight through cover to cover, I would get it. By the way, I do not recommend reading the Bible this way. When I listened to the readings at Mass, they didn't make sense either sometimes. So I would try to read along. Again, I like the fast approach. If I read it quickly enough, I'd have a few minutes left to daydream, while it seemed like the person reading went on forever and ever. I'd wait, hoping for a homily that, that would explain these words, but often, when the priest launched into his explanation of scriptures, I'd find myself zoning out. I guess I wanted a practical homily that I could relate to more. Little did I know just how much I could and do relate to the Word of God. My First Adult Bible I Love My Godparents from the time I was a child until this very day, my godparents would always say, Michael is so good. They have always been able to see my goodness even when I was not able to see it. I got into trouble a lot as a child, believe it or not, and no matter what my parents or anybody else would say about me, my godparents would always say, not our Michael, he is a good kid. They were always affirming. Another thing I loved about them is they always gave me the best gifts for Christmas and birthdays. After opening all the gifts for my parents and family, there would usually be some gift that I wanted but didn't get. I knew there was still hope for that gift because I hadn't seen my godparents yet. I suspect that my parents granted them this very special privilege and allowed my godparents to surprise me with a gift that I wanted. I found this to be true at a very special occasion. That is until my 13th birthday. Ah, my 13th birthday. I was finally a, a teenager. It meant a whole new freedom. I could shed a lot of the childhood things, one of which was my Catholic grade school. To my great disappointment, as I unwrapped my godparents' much-anticipated gift and discovered it was a Bible and a leather case. I liked the leather case, but I wasn't sure if it would work for anything else other than this Bible. The inscription on the title pa page read, To Our Godson Michael. May this Bible fill you with joy, wisdom, and abiding faith all the days of your life. All our love, Uncle D and Auntie Marcia, May 15, 1992, your 13th birthday. This is what would mark my 13th birthday? A Bible? What kind of teen did they think I was? I was embarrassed. How could they think I would want this for my birthday? Well, the truth is, they knew my likes and desires better than I knew myself. This would turn out to be a birthday present far more important to me than any uh, electronic keyboard, water skis, remote control card, skateboard, or video game that I ever got. This Bible has indeed filled me with joy, wisdom, and abiding faith in the Lord like no other gift ever has. They also saw something special in me that I was in denial of. My holiness, my call to the priesthood. I hated when someone would say anything to draw attention to this, even if they were my godparents. Just imagine, they saw something in me that would move them to give me 
a gift as a Bible as I entered into my teenage years. I think we all have a Bible to which we are attached. And although we can access, and although we can access it from almost anywhere now, computers, magazines, books, and even now from our smartphones and iPads, there's nothing like holding a real Bible in your hands. To this day, I treasure this Bible. I take it on every retreat, and I love to pray with it. Praying with Scripture. Scripture began to open to me during my first year at St. Mary's Seminary. Father Ed Estock instructed us in our class, Oral Proclamation. He nurtured in us the idea that it wasn't just about reading words on a page, as the lectors do. These words had to mean something to us. They had to mean much more than something that we could understand in our heads. They had to actually mean something that could only be understood in our hearts. Now, I like this. Although I considered myself to be kind of a head guy, my head certainly wasn't getting it, so it stirred a great hope in me when I realized that my heart could give meaning to these words. Father Estoc taught us the process that would later that I would later come to know as Lexio Divina. Lexio simply means reading the text slowly, pausing there was pausing wherever there is a sense of God speaking. That's the first step of Lexio Divina. The second step is meditatio, which is meditation. In this step, you slowly reflect on the text and allow it to speak to your life. The third step, oratio, oration. In this step, you speak to God and allow him to speak to you. It's praying with the scripture. And finally, my favorite, contemplatio, contemplation, simply resting with the word letting it wash over us, allowing God to hold us in his word and dwell with him. With Lexio Divina, I discovered I could choose any passage and read it until there was something that touched me and made some sense. When I read sacred scripture, there would often be strange words and phrases that I would encounter, but I learned that, it didn't, that I didn't have to get hung up on them. I could just move on until there was something that touched me. If it was something that I didn't understand or found challenging, I could play around with it, toy with it in my head, roll around with it, allow myself to enter into it and imagine it. If there was fruit, I would stay there. But if it got frustrating, I didn't have to solve it or get it. I could just continue on until something else grabbed my attention. I didn't have to know the historical sig significance, although that does help. Or I didn't have to understand everything that I was reading because it was heart speaking to heart. I would later discover that it was indeed the heart of Jesus speaking to my heart. As Father Estoc read from the page, he would ask each one of us to hold on to a word or phrase that touched us and just repeat that slowly to ourselves. After the meditation, he would ask us to share that word or phrase. It amazed me how each of us came up with a different word, or if we did have the same word, it certainly presented a very different meaning or context. Wow, I realized, there's something here. This is mystery. God does speak right to us. I now knew how to pray with the word, and it took on a whole new meaning and significance in my life. I could do Lexia with every passage, whether it was the upcoming Sunday reading or a passage someone mentioned that they liked and that they didn't understand. 
As a lector, when I proclaimed the reading at Eucharist, I found that the words quivered from my mouth because they were deeply meaningful. I had prayed with them, and Jesus had spoken to me. Through the knowledge of Scripture, still gently intimidating me, I was no longer intimidated by it, and I could pray with it. My Scripture courses deepened my appreciation for Lexio Divina. I learned about the different ways of approaching Scripture and reading it, how to interpret it, its nuances and its meanings, all of which are very valid and necessary, and all of which only fostered a deeper Lexio in me. I came to understand that Scriptures were not just about Jesus and our faith. They are the living Word of Jesus and the essence of our faith. Researching a pericope, which is a short passage or a text, helped me to understand all of these different views and fleshed out the passage even more. I began to understand the value of tradition and how these passages have been shared and understood throughout the ages through the saints, the scholars, the theologians, and the mystics. Many of these learned men and women have introduced me to scripture passages that once seemed so foreign. I have now prayed with the Song of Songs, the Book of Job, the Gospel of John, the Psalms, and I rest comfortably in them, and the word rests in my heart. In my first year of graduate school, I had to make a postinia. This is a retreat which involves 24 hours of silence and fasting on bread and water with only a Bible and a crucifix. This terrified me. It terrified me so much that I asked the spiritual director if I should take the knife in with me to cut the bread. I also asked if he would hear my confession before entering into silence. He decided he'd better take that knife and asked if I had received communion that day, and when I acknowledged that I had, he said to me, Your sins are forgiven then. Go in peace. I was doing anything I could to avoid spending 24 hours with the Bible. I couldn't think of a more anxiety-provoking situation. He did give us one good tip. Pick a gospel passage and read it straight through. I chose Luke's gospel because I knew he wasn't the longest and he was writing to the Gentiles, so it was filled with writings of miracles and wonders for people that I didn't understand or relate to in the Jewish history. That would be me. I was like that Gentile. I was like the person that didn't understand and needed to. I took off my shoes when I entered the room, laid my blanket on the floor, prostrated myself before the crucifix and said, Okay, God. You got me for 24 hours. Please don't disappoint me. I began with Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who are eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you. Oh! <sighs> This is exhausting, I thought. Most excellent Theophilus, who is Theophilus? So that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. I laid my head on the Bible and escaped into sleep. I woke up several hours later realizing I had only made it through one paragraph, but something about it intrigued me. This phrase, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings. Wow, could Luke really do this in one gospel? The phrase that was so familiar to me, 
the infancy narratives. Ah, I know this. As I read, I began to realize I didn't know Luke's infancy narratives. I was familiar with the nativity scene under my Christmas tree and the Christmas plays done by the children at Holy Family at my home parish. It was all there. But Luke was skipping things. He was forgetting important things like the Magi and the gifts. There was something deeply moving about reading the entire gospel in a 24-hour period. And from the time of Jesus' conception, to his birth and baptism, to his temptation in the desert, to the healings and the miracles, the parables, the parable of the prodigal son and the lost sheep, all together in one great teaching. The prediction of the Passion, Martha and Mary, do not worry about your life and what you will wear. All these passages that had already meant so much to me in the past calmed me, relieved my anxieties, and gave me a sense of wonder. Jesus in his fullness, the cleansing of the temple, the Last Supper, Peter's denial, the agony in the garden, the arrest, the the stations of the cross, the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection, the road to Emmaus and the ascension, all of this I got to experience as one continuous reading and meditation. It was like I was with him. This truly is the greatest story ever told. I read, I prayed, I slept, I journaled, I ate and broke the bread with him in the desert and drank water which poured forth from the cross. He was in me, and I was in him. I didn't want my postinia to come to an end. I didn't want to finish the book of Luke. It was all too good. Why had I never read one book straight through before? Now I wanted to do it with Mark and Matthew, not so much with John because he was too advanced and not for beginners. Once a month, following my first postinia, I would take a desert day entering into another book of the Bible with fasting and solitude. These days were sacred and solemn. This may be impractical for some people and difficult to do without direction. It's simply too hard for most people to direct themselves through the scriptures. We are a faith of scripture and tradition. Scripture should always be shared within community or with a spiritual director or a good spiritual friend. Over the years, praying with the scriptures has become central to my prayer life. As with all prayer, discipline is necessary. The most important aspect is that we actually make the time to pray, that we actually sit down and pray with scripture. The Catechism states this so strongly and beautifully. Paragraph 2710. The choice of the time and duration of the prayer arises from a determined will, revealing the secrets of the heart. One does not undertake contemplative prayer only when one has the time. One makes the time for the Lord. With the firm determination not to give up, no matter what trials or dryness one may encounter, one can always meditate. One cannot always meditate, but one can always enter into inner prayer, independently of the conditions of your health, work, or emotional state. The heart is the place of this quest and encounter in poverty and in faith. I think the most important phrase in there is, one does not undertake prayer only when one has the time. One makes the time for the Lord. We have to actually make time to pray with Scripture. 
It has been through these intimate times of praying with the Word of God day in and day out, preparing for the Sunday Eucharist during silent retreats, that the Word of God has taken flesh in my life. Funeral Planning This would seem to be an odd place to go next. As with Lexio Divina, God reveals scripture passages that are unique to us all and will become his flesh for us in very personal ways. As a diocesan priest, we're supposed to plan the liturgy for our funeral and keep it at the archives in the chancery downtown. When I was newly ordained, I sat down and reflected on what mine would be. What would I choose if I had one last opportunity to tell people more about God? The readings that came to mind very readily, they are the most near and dear to my heart. These readings are what Jesus has revealed to me about the Father's love, and they are also my greatest hope beyond hope of what everlasting life with the Trinity will be. These are the readings that have taken flesh in my life. Three readings and a psalm are usually chosen for a funeral. One reading from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the Old Testament, one reading from the New Testament letters, one gospel reading from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and the psalm, which is normally sung by the cantor. Believe it or not, it was a beautiful experience for me to reflect on these readings, as well as my death, and it would be a good experience for anyone to do. Think about that for yourselves. What readings would you choose for your funeral liturgy? What would the readings be for you if you could leave one final word of God with the people that you love? Here are my choices. From the Hebrew Scriptures, the Song of Songs, Arise, my beloved, my beautiful one. Psalm 139, O Lord, you search me and you know me. From the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 13, Love is patient, love is kind. And from the Gospels, Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. The following are my reflections about how Jesus introduced me to each of these passages and how they have taken flesh in my life. The Song of Songs After I made a 30-day retreat and was entering my last year of the seminary, I went through a time of spiritual crisis. Many questions arose about my readiness for ordination. Was I ready? Aware of my own sinfulness and hurts in life, did I need to take more time for healing and for wholeness? I went to spiritual direction. At the end of the session, my director asked me to pray with the Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 10. My lover speaks to me. He says to me, Arise, my beloved, my beautiful one, and come. For see, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of pruning the vines has come, and the song of the dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth its figs, and the vines in bloom give forth fragrance. Arise, my beloved, my beautiful one, and come. As my spiritual director read these words to me, I looked at I looked up at him with tears in my eyes and asked, Is my winter really over? He looked back and smiled gently at me, nodding his head and saying, I think so. I think so. 
I prayed with these words on a summer afternoon on the pool deck in my parents' backyard, the sun warming me. For see, the winter is past. These words penetrated my heart so deeply and gave me a confidence of spirit that allowed me to let go of many things that had held me back for so long. There was a new confidence, a trust in the Holy Spirit, and a change in my self-image that from then on I knew that in His eyes, in God's eyes, I was His beautiful one. I was His beloved. I never really saw myself as a beautiful person, but now I am deeply aware of my beauty and my attractiveness that God sees in me and has gifted me with to draw others into His love. For the next six months, the Song of Songs became my deep focus in my prayer life. I copied it down, fitting it all on one sheet, front and back. I carried it in my breviary, my journal, my back pocket. I took it everywhere I went. I read it over and over. Every day for 15 minutes of spiritual reading, I would pray with it for half an hour contemplatively. In the end, it would become the inspiration for the chalice with which my parents commissioned as a gift for my priestly ordination. I fell deeply in love with God, and with the very first line, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a mystic, describes this as an open-mouth kiss from God where the Holy Spirit breathes deep into you. In it, I have heard God assure me of how beautiful I am in his sight. You are my beloved, my beautiful one. You are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. I know how he loves to look deeply into my eyes and I into his. I've been held in God's embrace. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. He assured me that my lover belongs to me and I to him. I have experienced the wounds of love and the aching of wanting to be deeper in love with God. On my bed at night, I sought him, whom my heart loves. I sought him, but I did not find him. I've had this experience and the desire of finding God, of taking hold of him and of not letting him go. You have ravished my heart with one glance of your eyes. How much more delightful is your love than wine? I have come to know that this love in the Eucharist, especially when I drink of the precious blood from the chalice, it has brought me to a sure and steadfast proclamation of faith. I belong to my lover, and for me he yearns. When I die, I want this line to be spoken. As the Song of Songs has become so much a part of my love for God and my whole new life in the priesthood, I realize how much God pursues me. When the end of my life comes and the winter is truly over, I'd like people to know that I am entering into the warmth of springtime and the resurrection. All of my suffering and all of my struggling has come to an end, and I now delight to rest in my lover's arms, his left hand under my head, and his right arm embraces me. The winter is over. Psalm 139 As a seminarian, I went to spiritual direction and confession once a month. For a penance, Father Oles would often give me a scripture passage to pray with. Many times it would be Psalm 139. 
I think after overwhelming him for an hour of me talking about how confused I was about my life, he would be glad to, ha he would be glad to hand me back to God and help God assure me that at least he knew me. Through Psalm 139, I came to know how deeply I am known and loved by God. He knows my wants. He knows my needs. He knows it all. I don't have to understand myself, nor do I even have to fully understand him, but I can take comfort in knowing that he does know me. He can search out that from which I want to hide. He holds me close, even when I try to flee. This psalm comes up on Wednesday, week four, evening prayer, the liturgy of the hours, so I always have it to pray at hand. On those Wednesdays, another priest who knows my love for this passage will often call me or text me and just remind me that he remembers me whenever he prays Psalm 139. O Lord, you search me and you know me. You know my resting and my rising. You discern my purpose from afar. You mark when I walk or lie down. All my ways lie open to you. Not only do I take assurance in the fact that God knows me personally in the depths of my soul, but also that he discerns my purpose. God will show me the path to walk in this life. He knows what will bring me happiness and contentment. He has the vision, so I don't have to. And wow, is God's vision wonderful. My life is greater than I could have ever imagined or hoped it would be. I also love that all my ways lie open to him. There is nothing that is hidden from him, and there is nothing that I have to hide from God. Even my sins are not hidden from him. Even that burden I can share with him. And yes, Jesus takes that to himself on the cross. I've always wanted to have a significant other that I can share everything with, every moment of my life, all the good times and the bad. That was the one of the greatest sacrifices for me of priesthood is that I, I truly wanted to be married. And I found that God is this other for me. God knows all of this and delights in me sharing everything with him. Behind me and before, you besiege me. Your hand is ever laid upon me. My primary love language is touch. For some reason, that is the way I am most assured of love and acceptance and presence. For me, these words bring me great comfort. God literally surrounds me, overwhelms me, embraces me, encircles me, and holds me. I'm reminded of the experiences I've had in my life of being held, loved unconditionally, within the sacraments as well as through people that God has placed into my life. God's hand is ever laid upon me. 2 Timothy 6 Beloved, I remind you to stir into flame the gift of God that you have through the imposition of my hands. I have felt his hands laid upon me in baptism, confirmation, confession, anointing of the sick, and ordination. When I pray with this passage as a prayer of repetition, I can relive and feel God's hands on my head. In Psalm 139, I have taken such security in the Lord's presence in my life. His hand is ever upon me, discerning my ways, being present to me even in the darkness. It is clear to him, totally known, revealed. I am held. And the final light line says, Lead me in the path of life eternal. What a beautiful line for a funeral liturgy. 
it expresses the hope for which I live. Lead me in the path of life eternal. 1 Corinthians 13 As my faith formation continued, praying with scriptures was cemented even more into my life when our house spiritual director mandated that we all pray contemplatively for a specific amount of time every day. I began with 15 minutes and after some time found that because it took me most of those 15 minutes to settle down, I increased it to 30 minutes. For my first year at at St. Mary's Seminary, I prayed every day, come hell or high water, contemplatively with the Word of God. There was no limit to what passage I could pray with, and a good fallback was where the scripture readings were for the upcoming Sunday readings. Praying with the Word of God like this on a regular basis introduced me more and more to His intimacy. It was something that I thrived on. I began listening for any word, any phrase, any passage that I could pray with. This experience is so beautifully described by St. Teresa of Avila. Contemplative prayer, in my opinion, is nothing else than a close sharing between friends. It means taking time frequently to be alone with him who we know loves us. I desire this deep intimacy with the Lord, my good friend. I decided to make my first eight-day Ignatian retreat. Those eight days would forever change my life. I learned something wonderful. Go where there is fruit. What that means is, if there is something producing fruit in my spiritual life and in my prayer, I can and should continue to go back to it and keep being fed by it until the tree stops producing fruit. When it does, I can move on to one where there will be more fruit. This is how we pray with Scripture. If there is any Scripture passage that has any meaning to you, Go to that passage and pray with it. I also learned Ignatian contemplation. This has greatly opened up my life with the scriptures. This form of prayer, unlike any other, has allowed me to come to know Jesus in a very real and personal way through prayer, meditation, reflecting, and creatively playing with the scriptures. I love using my imagination, but I had no idea that God could become so real through this gift of my imagination. As my retreat director, Father Bob Welsh, began by asking me what I thought about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, my answer told him that a conversation with the Son would be the most non-threatening for me. In my mind, the Father was authoritative and a bit too parental, as many people would term, falsely, the Old Testament God. The Spirit was pretty elusive and impersonal, so that leaves praying with the Son. Father Bob directed me to begin my retreat by dialoguing with Jesus and to ask him simply, Jesus, what's the Father like? That question answered through Jesus in Scripture would forever change my image of God, God the Father, and my desire to know Jesus through praying with Scripture. What do you mean, talk to Jesus? I asked Father Welsh. You see, I have always prayed to God, but it was a whole other thing to pray with God. And then he introduced me to his best friend, and now mine. Father Welsh began playfully. Well, I just talked to him. But you have to be yourself, and you have to be honest. Maybe it even starts with, hey, Jesus, it feels kind of strange talking out loud like this. Are you really listening? Can you really hear me? Will you talk back to me? 
He talked to Jesus like he was real, right there with us. Kind of awkward, I thought, but if this wise, holy, joyful, deeply compassionate priest does this and is asking me to, maybe it's worth a shot. I prayed with passage after passage that he asked me to pray with. He gave me passages from the creation account to Jeremiah and even my favorite Psalm 139. I began, I began constantly asking that question, Jesus, what's the Father like? I was not even sure if I wanted the answer, but I did want to talk to him. After immersing myself in the Word for two days and feeling like I was getting nowhere, Father Welsh told me I needed to relax, do something that relaxes me. He asked me, what relaxes you? And I said, well, I like movies. He said, go see a movie. I said, on my eight-day silent retreat, go see a movie? Yeah, he said, have some fun with God. There's no stopping how he can work. So, off I went to see a movie. It was a foreign film playing at the Cedar Lee, and it was entitled Spring, Summer, Autumn, Winter, Spring. You know what that movie was about? The film turned out to be about a father-son relationship. It was about a boy who is orphaned and left on the step of a medicine man's door. The man finds the boy, delights in him, and raises him as his son. Throughout the whole movie, I'm seeing what the father was really like. Jesus was answering my question. I was seeing how gentle the father is as he lifts the boy from the dock and onto the boat. It reminded me of how rough and impatient my father could often be with me at times. On the car ride home, I talked to Jesus, finally, and I asked him, Jesus, what's the father like? I've never seen Jesus so excited. He spoke. Finally, you're asking me. I've been waiting for you to ask me this so that I can tell you what the father is like. This is the reason for which I came. Jesus then went on to tell me all the things that the Father is like. The Father is patient. The Father is kind. The Father is gentle. There was a whole litany of images of the Father. And when he finished, I was crying. And I realized that he was speaking to words to me that were very familiar, words that I'd heard over and over again at weddings. 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. I went back and prayed with these words so intensely, holding on to this new revelation of what the Father is like. I now saw the Father is completely patient, loving, slow to anger, delighting in me, rejoicing in me, hoping in me, and promising that he will never fail me. My image of God had been totally redeemed and changed and transformed into this Abba, Daddy, this unconditional loving Father. On the day of my funeral, I would like it to be remembered that love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love will never fail. The Father, whom I have come to know and love in this life through Jesus, is more than I could ever hope for or believe in. And I know, and now I truly believe because of Jesus, that the Father will not fail me. Luke 15, The Prodigal Son 
Of all the parables, this is the most well-known parable. A dear priest friend once said to me that if this was the only scripture that we had, we would have everything that we need to understand for our salvation. It is through the prodigal son that I have come to know the Father's love most incarnationally. That means in the flesh. Scripture can be introduced to us in many ways, and this time for me, it was through a book. Something about this parable had always been attractive to me since the time I was a teenager. There was a great comfort in knowing that the Father would welcome me back no matter what mess I had gotten myself into. And now that I had come to know the Father, with the help of Jesus giving me Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, I knew that the Father was patient, the Father was kind. I found his embrace much easier to approach. I had a difficult relationship with my father growing up. I've never wanted him really to hug me, and I found that I had a difficulty relating to older men in general, so I'm not sure that I knew how to pray with this passage. After reading Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, this parable took on a whole new meaning for me. I began reading it one spring break while lying on the beach in Florida. It was Lent, and I had every intention to read Joseph Cardinal Bernadine's The Gift of Peace. And after taking a walk down the beach with a group of seminarians, I came back to find my towel and my book missing. I found it hard to believe that someone would steal a religious book, and I was persistent, frustrated, and angry, trying to find it. I finally gave up, and that's a foreign thing to me, by the way, and I took another book out of my bag. It was Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Prodigal Son. I thank God that first book was stolen, though I, w I would read it many years later and benefit from it. At this time, I knew I was supposed to read The Prodigal Son because it allowed me to spend time with Henry Nouwen's reflections on The Prodigal Son, his older resentful brother, and the prodigious, unbelievably extraordinary, loving, generous, and forgiving father. In this book, I would discover my deepest desire and my deepest call. I, of course, easily related to the prodigal son and even the elder resentful brother. I have also come to know not only the father's embrace in a very real way, but I dwell securely in that embrace, and I have come to realize that my ultimate call is to become the father's love for others. This would become the theme that I chose for my ordination. The son becomes the father. This is why I love it when people call me father because it gives me a chance to be this unconditionally loving father to others. I've always had this deep desire to be held safely in the arms of God the Father and over the years through spiritual direction and deep spiritual friendship I have come to know this love in the flesh. With the encouragement of my spiritual director I have allowed others to show me glimpses of the Father's love. I have become vulnerable enough to allow others to care for me, to know me, to accept me, and to hold me. My hope beyond hope is that when I die, it will be like the scene in Luke 15. While he was still a long way off, the father caught sight of his, sight of his son and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. I feel his embrace when I go to spiritual direction. I feel the Father's embrace when I go to confession. I feel his embrace when I am in prayer. And through the love 
of the people that God has placed into my life, including my earthly father, whom I can now hug. I have come to know and dwell in this embrace through the abundance of the love, the support, and the affection with which God has surrounded me. I want to dwell forever in the Father's embrace. The passage ends beautifully with this kind of celebration, and I would like my funeral to be like this. My son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Could there be any better way to come to the end of my life? Are there any other words that could be spoken? Now we must celebrate and rejoice. Because your brother was dead and has come to life again, he was lost and has been found. I have been so blessed to come to know these scriptures. They have become deeply ingrained in my mind and in my heart and in my soul. Through these holy words, I have come to fall deeply in love with the Lord and the Song of Songs, to be assured time and time again that I am known and loved completely in Psalm 139, to come to know from the very mouth of Jesus what the Father is like in Corinthians 13. And finally, to experience the Father's embrace so completely and so securely. It is with these words that I would like to end this reflection, with the hope that they will be spoken when my life comes to an end. Arise, my beloved, my beautiful one, and come. For see, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, Your eyes have seen all of my actions. In your book, they are all written. My days were limited before one of them existed. Did I reach the end of them? I should still be with you. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. While he was still a long way off, His father caught sight of his son and was filled with compassion. He ran to him, embraced him, and kissed him. Now we must celebrate and rejoice, because your brother was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. In the beginning, the word was made flesh, and the word became flesh. This is how the word of God has taken flesh in my life. How is the word of God taking flesh in yours? If you could leave those words made flesh for those you will leave behind, what words would they be? By reading scripture and praying with it, by finding those passages you are most attracted to, may the word of God take flesh in your life.